Last month, September 11th, 2021, our country paused to remember the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City. If you're anything like me and are old enough to remember the event, you will likely remember exactly where you were when you heard the news or you saw the images of those attacks. At that time, the company which I had um, worked for had the contract to de- and reconstruct the University of Wyoming's uh, student union. Initially, I had heard the news. It was playing on a radio downstairs. We started at 7 a.m., and uh, upon hearing it, everyone stopped working. Some others and I made our way up uh, to an area that we had already completed, knowing that uh, they had a large television up there. And when we arrived... uh, there were maybe a hundred people, something like that, packed into a space, maybe something about the size of that, uh, around this large television. I remember people weeping uncontrollably as we observed first responders rushing to the burning building, while human beings, out of complete and total desperation, were casting themselves out of those burning buildings. Most of us know that during and after each aircraft's hijacking, some people made their final calls to family and loved ones, and if you paid attention to the news, they certainly went over some of those and listened to those, and I found myself just as enthralled as we celebrated, or not celebrated, but remembered that 20th year, weeping the same way I did that day. And listening to those calls, to those family members who were those last calls. Others calling, they called for pleas of help to the emergency number. As youngsters, we are all taught. I remember my mother over and over as a young boy would always teach me. I think the government at that point in time was telling parents, tell your kids, just say no. That was the big push, you know, governmentally, is just say no to drugs. And then my mom would always add, add, you know, don't forget, if you ever have a problem, you just dial 911 in case of emergency. We're all taught that, but on that tragic morning, the system was overloaded and malfunctioning due due to the number of calls that were coming in. In spite of those system failures, however, In the end, over nine hours of emergency calls were recorded and later listened to for those family members who were looking to hear that last recording of their loved one's voice. I cannot imagine what it must have been like for those dispatchers receiving so many pleas for help and all at once. I listened to one recording where the dispatcher attempted to calm this very frantic female who seemed to know that she was going to die, telling her, ma'am, say your prayers. Daily, our emergency dispatchers listen to pleas, they calm callers, they obtain locations, and they pass on the information to those who have promised to come to our needs. In short, those are ever ready to hear from those of us who are in need. But in times of great crisis like those of September 11, 2001, man's systems in their finiteness, even though we have worked very hard to 
improve them, reach their capacity, do they not? And it highlights our humanity's desperate need to call on the name of their creator, Yahweh, God, whose system of communication, that is prayer, never fails, and it is never overloaded, and he is always waiting to hear. Friends, we've been in a series titled A Devoted Church. It's been our heart to pause between 1 Timothy and the start of 1 John to take some time as a new church, especially although we are in a very historic location, uh, a new church in that historic location, we are coming together and essentially answering the question and building the blocks of what it means to be a devoted church. And we have been uh, looking at this simple text in Acts chapter 242 now for six weeks, and we even had a pause in between there. And so we're on week seven. But I have posed to you that we want to be a devoted church. And I have also told you and explained to you that this devoted church, right, is the church that ultimately in Acts chapter 17, when Paul gets to Thessalonica, they say of him, this is the one who has turned the world upside down. And I feel like, beloved, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I certainly feel like the church is a little sleepy. And even through COVID, I feel like the church has stayed just a little sleepy. It hasn't woken up. And I think the push to isolate and get away has certainly not been helpful, maybe needed. But as we come back together and we listen to this and what it means to be a devoted church, my hope is that you might rethink about church. You might rethink what it means. And so we have been in this series now, and they are a series of six messages And today is the final one titled, Prayer Matters. And it is out of that last clause in Acts 2.42 that they were continually devoted to the prayers. We started the first week in uh, understanding that we need to be continually devoted to biblical leadership so that we can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. The second week, we uh, talked about that we must be a church if we're going to reach the world and be uh, 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 making a difference in our community, that we must be a church that knows that the lost matter and that we are committed to the Great Commission. Number three, we learned that the church who was continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and turning the world upside down, that what mattered then was that the truth mattered, and we talked about the apostles' doctrine. The fourth week, we learned that we are going to need to be a continually devoted church, and in doing so, we have to share life together, and we parsed out that word fellowship. And if you'll remember with me, it is not a verb, but a noun. It is not something that we are doing. We are going to fellowship. It is something that we are a part of. It is a commitment. It is a shared experience that we see in verses 46 and 47, right? They were coming together. They were selling their property. They were bringing their resources. And certainly, uh, even in a church today, we might take a look at our membership and our expectation of that membership. And we are expecting that people would come together and they would share their resources, both their talents and their finances, and for not just so that the church can exist, right, but so that we might advance the gospel and preach the gospel and be a lighthouse in our community. So we learn that fellowship matters. 
Also, the church that turned the world upside down was continually devoted to coming together like a family to eat a meal and to remember the Lord's supper with gladness and sincerity of heart. And why? Because the breaking of bread mattered. It's important for us to remember, and we come together every first Sunday of the month, and we take the Lord's table, and we remember all that the Lord has done for us. And we pause, and we ask ourselves, and we repent of sin, and we do that together. Second, we looked at the, just the natural outflow of that in those verses in 43 to 47, where we found that beyond just the breaking of the bread, that communion, they were going from house to house spending daily their time together. They were eating together. They were uh, doing life together. They were sharing resources together. They were praying together. There was a togetherness, and it is this magic scene that causes a devoted church to turn the world upside down. And beloved, I, I, I hope our desire as elders, as leaders, is that we would be a church that would come together and do that. This leads us to our final message in the series, which is titled, That Prayer Matters. Prayer Matters. Friends, whether that dispatcher who told that female victim, ma'am, say your prayers, was a born-again Christian or not, there is created deep within humanity an innate recognition that God exists, His systems never fail, and in times of great horror or great triumph, human beings always pray. They always pray. It wasn't too long ago, and maybe it was one of you I was having this conversation, but what is it? And there's a saying that goes around you, you've certainly probably heard it, but there there are no believers in a foxhole. Unbelievers, excuse me, in a foxhole. There are no unbelievers in a foxhole. When bullets are flying over your head and bombs are going off and body parts are flying by, it doesn't matter how atheistic you might be. All of a sudden, that deep thing that God has planted inside of you to know him and know him well comes to life, and people cry out to that God to save them. Beloved, prayer is that tool, that 911 call to the only God who is always available, never overloaded, and eternally willing to come through on his promise, amen? If we're going to be a church that turns the world upside down, we will have to be continually devoted to a lifestyle of personal prayer and to corporate prayer, coming together. And why? Prayer matters. I've been using Young's literal translation of Acts 2.42 And I have been pointing out that in the Greek manuscripts, you will see that before each of these uh, different pillars that we have been talking about, the definite article, the, shows up. And Young's literal translation does a good job of that. And the ESV, I really like, as they really point that out also. But Young's literal translation reads this. And they, those were the 3,000 people who had been saved at Pentecost, were continuing steadfastly. I love that. They were continuing steadfastly in the the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. 
Depending on your translation there, you may just have something like and prayer. That is certainly plural, but I want to point out once again that in that Greek manuscript, it is the, and prayer is in the plural, so it is the prayers. You could write that in or make note of that, and it might help you in your study when you come back to it later, but it's important to see that uh, no doubt the Spirit of God who is inspiring Luke to write these historical things down has very, very specifically added the in front of each one of those pillars. Uh, Some of them go away in our English translations, but I believe it's important that you get them there. It might slow you down to think, what is the bread? What are the prayers? What was the apostles teaching? The presence of that definite article in front of that plural form of prayers uh, makes this clause as was the breaking of the bread, just a little difficult to nail down. Remember last week that we talked about how it clearly could have been this very specific idea that they were coming together to have the Lord's table, and certainly it was this idea that they were coming together and having a meal together. Well, it's similar here with the prayers. The presence of the word the or that definite article speaks to specificity where the following paragraph, which seems to give exposition to verse 42, speaks of generalities. In verses 43 through 47, the early Christians were listening to the apostles, sharing their resources to advance the gospel. They were breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together. And as we noted last week in verse 47, they were praising God a form of prayer. We would call that a general form of prayer. What we learn from these verses is that both the specific prayer of verse 42 and the general prayer of verse 47 were continually going on in the church that turned the world upside down. And as we focus on this today, it's what we need to pull away from this. I could really stop right now. It's pretty simple to understand. This church that was turning the world upside down was continually devoted to praying together, to eating together, to breaking bread together, to fellowshipping, sharing their resource together, to studying the Word of God together. But before we move on to the specific and general prayers, I want to take just a moment and define what prayer is. Author Gary Miller wrote a book titled Calling on the Name of the Lord, subtitled A Biblical Theology of Prayer. Miller's book looks for the common thread which weaves together every instance of prayer from Genesis to Revelation to create a biblical definition of our word prayer. You ever trying to just say or define what prayer is? Sometimes it's the most difficult thing, right? We talked about it with the gospel. We speak of the gospel and Sometimes it's hard for us to define exactly what the gospel is. It is spoken of in so many different ways and referred to pieces and parts, and that it is with prayer. It is something we innately know today, and we might say, like that lady, that dispatcher, ma'am, say your prayers. We understand that it is a communication with God. But after all of Miller's work, he came up with an eight-word definition concluding that prayer is, and I quote, calling on God to come through on his promise. 
Prayer is calling on God to come through on His promise. Inasmuch as it is important to have a good definition of what prayer is, it is also good to note what prayer is not. In my study, I have been enjoying, and I've just been reading this book on and off uh, from Al Mohler, and the book is titled, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. Now, you should just want to go get it, right? We've been saying that phrase over and over and over. Now, you're right. You should go get it. It's a wonderful book. His focus is more on personal prayer that we know uh, in that, that we know the Lord's Prayer rather than on the corporate nature that we're going to lean in on today. However, he gives some helpful tips on, prayer, on what prayer should not be. It says this, number one, prayer is not an act of creative self-expression. And he mentions John 4, the woman at the well, who is wanting to argue with Jesus about where to worship. And, and Jesus doesn't allow that argument to happen, right? Uh, he says, ultimately, that those who know and love the Lord will worship in spirit and truth. It won't be so much around a location, as it is around the idea of spirit and truth. And so prayer is not an act of creative self-expression where we just uh, come to the Lord and, and, and uh, like an artist and do what we want. It is full of being led by, convicted from the spirit and the truth of God's word. We should come to the word. And as we read our word daily, it should bring conviction if the spirit of God lives in us. And as that conviction comes, then we respond, and in that response, we may repent of prayer, or we may celebrate that God has done a great work in our life, right? But it is not just free. It is not just whatever. We are speaking to the creator of the universe. Number two, prayer is not an act of therapy, although it can be therapeutic. God may very well ask you to give up your life, right? We may come to the Lord, and we may receive some therapy, some uh, some lifting up and building up, and certainly we do, right? But it may be in those times that God would ask us to pay that ultimate price as he did Jesus. Number three, prayer is not an act of manipulation. It should be done in humility with a heart of humility, not uh, uh, expressing, right, this idea, not my will, but yours be done. Certainly, we come to God and we would ask Him for things, and, and we would do that, and we would want to do that in a humble heart, one that says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. But let us not forget, right, God is this great Father who loves us, who calls us, who has adopted us in His dear Son. He certainly wants to hear from us. Jesus evidenced that in His life of prayer, often going off, sometimes all night long to spend time in communion with the Father. What an amazing thing. Number four, prayer is not a news report. Prayer is not a news report. I've been guilty of this sometimes. Sometimes it's because everybody doesn't know what I'm praying about, so then I begin to tell them about what I'm praying about in my prayer. It's not a news report, right? God knows everything all the time, past, present, and future, right? We just come before the Lord and we humbly ask. <clears throat> Jesus, a much more popular speaker than Al Mohler, gave a couple of warnings about the nature of prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he said this, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by all men. Don't do that. In just a few verses later, in verses six, uh, or chapter 6, verse 7 through 8, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. After Jesus taught them how not to pray, He continued on with Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. We're very familiar with it. And says, the, pray then this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. For younger with our kids, being younger, we often walked through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, and you do a word study on hallowed. It's from Hagias or Hagiedzo, this idea of being holy or set apart. And some of your translations will even say, holy is your name, most hallowed. But the boys would be like, what does that mean, hallowed? What is that? I don't really understand that. And so we would tell them to say it this way. And we would often pray this together at, the, at, at our own table. And we would say, awesome is your name. And they love to say awesome with lots of volume, right? So we recognize, Jesus says, that God is our Father, which is just unspeakably difficult for somebody in the Jewish uh, world at this point in time to understand, but, but there is this nature, right? This Father, this who we have come from and who we will go back to, who is in heaven, awesome, hallowed, holy, set apart is your name, your kingdom come. I want you to note there, and maybe you should circle it, <laughs> there's a period there. Your kingdom come, period. Your will be done is next, right, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. When you read this prayer in Luke chapter 11, you'll see that's all it says. There is no your will be done, right? The prayer is uh, as it always has been and should be and always was, even in the Old Testament, Lord, bring your kingdom. Bring your rulership to this earth. The idea is your kingdom come. We're tired of, our, tired of all the tyrants. We are tired of all the government stuff, right? We want a real, righteous, just king sitting over a kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a humble prayer that we might subject our wills to his. Give us this day our daily bread, is this plea, and God has promised to uphold that plea, right? How much does he uh, love more, love you? See how he clothes the lilies of the fields? See how he takes care of? Don't worry, little one, what you will eat or what you will drink. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord has some pretty good ideas around prayer. You'll take time through your day, and I really believe that this prayer, although I think there's been times in history where it has been repeated and repeated corporately and used corporately, 
is not necessarily this prescription for prayer, but the ideas that you find within it are. And if you'll slow yourself down, if you're struggling to pray as a person, and you will pray through this prayer, and just slow down and use it as a structure, you will find yourself confessing sin. You will find the Spirit of God communing with you, convicting you of sin that you personally have, that sin others have uh, pushed onto or sinned uh, against you with, and your need to forgive those sins, your need to ask and humbly ask for uh, things as simple as the meal that we receive, to give praise and honor and glory and awesomeness to the name of our Father. Beloved, if we are going to be a church that turns the world upside down, we will have to be a church that comes together for normal life appointments like breaking bread together and prayer. You'll know that we had corporate prayer all the way through the summer. We were coming together on Wednesday nights and taking prayer requests and then breaking up into groups and praying for those prayer requests. And In this season of, of what we do throughout the year, we get together in small groups. And uh, if you're not involved in a small group, we encourage you to uh, either get involved in the ones that are, exist or if you would like to just start one, come and talk to me. They're a simple thing for us. They are just breaking bread and praying, breaking bread and praying. If you have any kind of gift or desire for for hospitality, I often tell people this, you're going to eat a meal every week anyway. Find somebody in the church and say, would you like to eat a meal with me? And there's nothing like breaking bread together that it may take a little bit of time, and, uh, but we have people share their testimonies, kind of more than their testimonies, their life stories together. This is where I came from. This is the brokenness that I came from. This is how God reached into that brokenness and healed me up and saved me. These are the struggles that I have now at work. These are the struggles that I have now at home. And like Galatians 6, we bear one another's burdens and we pray for one another. Now that we've defined prayer, let's... Consider the two types of corporate prayer that is specific and general that the early church was continually devoted to. The specific prayer, the the, right? That definite article in front of the prayers is no doubt a reference to set times of prayer at the temple in Jerusalem. We know that these prayers were daily. As just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 1, you can look down there. It says this, now Peter and John, corporately, were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. Here comes the clarification, the hour of prayer. Clearly a reference to specific daily prayers that the Jews were going up in Jerusalem that very early, this is essentially when you were reading Acts 2, we're reading day one of the church, right? And John and Peter are still going up, as are others, to those daily prayer times. In part, these prayers were in alignment with the morning and the evening sacrifices prescribed by Yahweh in Exodus 29, verse 39, where God instructed the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, this morning and evening offer. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish man who defected to Roman rule and became an interpreter to Vespasian and his and to his son Titus during the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. He chronicled, it was his job essentially to interpret and also chronicle or write down the history 
of first century Israel in books titled, and we still have them today, The Jewish War and Antiquities of the Jews. Within the Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus revealed that temple worship included three specific public times of prayer for the Jews. One in the morning, during the time of the morning sacrifice. The second was at the ninth hour. We know that to be 3 p.m. That was uh, the evening sacrifice. And the third time of public prayer was set to be done at sunset. Jews would make their way to that temple mount, and they would go up, and they would have specific prayers. Certainly, there was a large amount of people going up to that temple mount. I hope that you have time to go to Israel one day and go and experience it. It is a awe-striking place. No doubt the prayers in verse 42 are the specific prayers which the early church was still taking part in. Even though Christ had taught that he would replace the temple as the access to Yahweh, right? He is going to replace that, stating that if they, that was the Pharisees, destroyed the temple, the access to God, he would rebuild it. That is the access to God in three days. And how was he going to do that? Through himself, which was clearly a reference to his resurrection. Beloved, we might ask why would these early Jewish Christians still be headed up to the morning and evening sacrifices and to corporate public prayers? Did they not know that Jesus was the final sacrifice? Did they not know that they could come boldly into the throne room of grace through the blood of Christ? Yes, quite certainly they did. They understood the apostles' teaching. They were teaching them correctly. So why would they continue those traditional practices of their religion? And I, may I suggest that they wanted to strike while the iron was hot. Have you heard that term? Some of these old blacksmithing terms, right, are going away. They hold on a little bit. If you were to get to know my oldest son, Tristan, you would find that one of his favorite shows on the TV is Forged in Fire. It's a reality show where modern blacksmiths come together to compete and forge these knives to see whose blade will stand the test of time, Right? And it is amazing to me that when I have taken opportunity uh, to watch the show with him, that these bladesmiths can take these dirty old chunks of metal, right? Sometimes they'll just give them an old chain or, or give them a chunk of some spring off of some old rusted out truck, and they'll take all that metal and they'll jam it into this furnace and this fire, right, until it gets all heated up, right? And, and they're looking at it. Sometimes you'll see them, they'll pull it out and see if it's the right color or not, or, and they'll put it back in. And, but when it gets that right color, while the iron is just right in its heat, they will pull it out and they will hit it. They will strike the metal. If the metal is not heated up enough or has been out of the fire for too long, the blacksmith cannot accomplish their task, right? The metal will not move. They must strike while the iron is hot. Beloved, I believe that these early believers understood that God had lit a fire in the land of Jerusalem in Israel with the coming of his son, Jesus. Jesus stoked that fire by legitimately offering the nation to be their king. 
In his rejection, Christ went through the flames of three illegal, unjust trials and was hung on a cross. He was buried in the grave and like iron in a forge, only to come out, right, with a new body. Beloved, the disciples were not going to the temple to engage so much in traditional Judaism, although some may have, and there may have been some confusion per se. They were obeying what Jesus had told them in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 8. But it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. What are these disciples doing? They're obeying. <laughs> they certainly understand at some level that God has paid the price, that the sacrifice means nothing. Christ had fulfilled the law. But they're going up there along with thousands of others, especially around Pentecost, right? And they are doing what it says there. They are witnessing in where? Jerusalem. And they will continue to witness in Jerusalem. And we see this play out in the book of Acts until they are pushed out and they are hated. In Acts chapter 6, we, we begin to see all that start to play out all the way through Acts chapter 8 where, where we see Saul of Tarsus begin to persecute and go house to house and drive the Christians out. And so much did he drive them out, right, that they end up in Samaria and Damascus and other parts of the world where he will follow them. And they will go there, and just like here, they will be disciplined to be witnesses. Beloved, the early church was going to the temple to pray, but make no mistake, they were speaking the message that Peter had preached on Pentecost, that God is just and he is going to judge every single sinner, and that every man, you and I, and woman, are sinners. They preached that Christ, whom they had all seen, took God's just wrath on behalf of sinners. He died and he was raised on the third day. And that if people would turn from their sin and believe those things, they would be saved from God's coming wrath on sin. Beloved, all these people, these thousands of people, they had all either witnessed after three and a half years of ministry from Jesus, they have seen him, they have heard of him, Somebody they know has been healed by him. Somebody they know has seen some kind of miracle from him. Many of them would have received, there's probably somewhere around 10,000 people receiving from two uh, fish and loaves. Bread upon bread and fish upon fish and the word is spreading and people are being healed and demons are being cast out and the lame are walking and the dead are rising. The iron is hot. They're going up, they are praying these prayers, and they are calling people, repent, <laughs> repent. I don't know if you, well, I'm sure you will remember that Jesus in his resurrected form, he, he uh, hits the road, right? And the road is heading to this town called Emmaus, and he is walking along with these two disciples, and it's very clear that God has blinded them from seeing who he is, and he begins to walk along with them and just ask them some simple questions. It's kind of a funny story, right? Then they basically turn it in because he, uh, he says to them something like, uh, well, I don't know what's been going on in Jerusalem. And they, I can imagine they stop and look at him like, are you stupid? <laughs> like, if you've been living in a cave, right? This Jesus, this miracle worker. 
They took him. They wanted to come. He was our king. He was our Messiah. And they hung him on a cross and he was resurrected. Have, have you been living in some kind of cave, right? The idea that I'm trying to get to you, beloved, is that the iron is hot. They are, they are fulfilling that which uh, God had commanded them to do, which was to take the gospel to Jerusalem. And everybody knew about it. And these disciples, when they found out this guy who they could not tell was Jesus, didn't know what was going on. They're like, what? Are you kidding me? The iron is hot. It was malleable. They're going up to the temple. They are praying. They are rubbing shoulders. They are sharing the gospel. Friends, I pray that all that we do in the interactions that God allows us to have that we are recognizing when the iron is hot, that we are engaging people. We do live in a very autonomous culture where we just kind of go about our way. And I think when you add to that autonomy, uh, also this Western-spirited kind of get out of my space, right? Have you ever been to a different country where it's, it's more normal for them to be like in your space and you're just like, ah, just, I, I don't want to breathe your air, you know? Just, and every time you back up, they get a little closer, right? They get, it's just like, stop that. We live in this culture, right, that we just kind of want our space and don't get into my business. And we've got to shake that off, beloved. We've got to look outside of ourselves. We've got to pause. We've got to slow down. We've got to remember that God is sovereign, that in his providence he brings people along, relationships, you're going to rub shoulders with people, and every day, the better you get at recognizing God has that person right there at that moment with you. It may not be time to strike that iron. It may not be hot. They may not see their sin, but you certainly can reach out to them with the gospel. You can reach out to them, get to know them, invite them. I, I love, uh, I've learned so much from being around Steve Melcher, who is so willing to just say, hey, listen, well, let's go grab a cup of coffee to somebody he doesn't even know, right? The iron may not be hot, but if that relationship doesn't get developed, you'll never know when it is. Beloved, we have to get our minds around the idea that we have purpose, that we must be continually devoted to reaching people. Beloved, the early church that turned the world upside down was continually devoted to the prayers at the temple. Why? So that they might reach the nation, the city that they were called to, and they're attending those prayers. They were rubbing shoulders, right, with unbelievers, hoping that they would be just at that right temperature, and they might dial 911 and say, Lord, save me. Inasmuch as 42 is specific to morning, evening, and sundown prayers, verses 46 and 47 make it clear that the early and the world-changing church were doing life together and undoubtedly offering up all kinds of general prayers for each other. Beloved, the early church knew that they could dial 911 anytime they were in need, right? God's phone lines would never be full. He would always be there to respond. He is ever ready for us to come and to ask. How many of you guys are like me and that oftentimes you just want to go along in your giftedness and your strength and your intellect and your abilities and, and even in the things that you do the best, maybe even your profession and you don't stop for a second to think, maybe I ought to pray about asking for help. I'm like that. 
Sometimes I'm just grinding along, and, so, and next thing I know, it's like, man, I am just tired. Why am I so tired? And I realize, wow, I, I'm just not praying at all about this. I've not invited God to walk along with me in this. I've not leaned on the Spirit of God for strength and for help. The early church knew that if they were going to turn the world upside down, that they needed to be continually in prayer. These general prayers are revealed all throughout Acts. In chapter 1, they prayed concerning replacing Judas. In chapter 1 also, there's 120 of them praying together, right? They are waiting on the Holy Spirit. All the apostles, all the women, Jesus' brothers and sisters, all of them are there. They are all coming together and praying. In chapter 2, we are talking about now, it says they were continually devoted to that corporate prayer. In chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple and pray together. In chapter 4, the church prays for boldness in light of mounting persecution. In chapter 6, the church prays for blessing with its selected leaders. In chapter 8, Peter and John pray for Samaria. In chapter 12, the church prays for Peter's deliverance. And when he is delivered, right, kind of a funny story, comes to the prayer meeting and gets kicked out, right? In chapter 13, the church prays and fasts for God to multiply his work. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas pray and fast to appoint elders in the churches that they're planning. In chapter 16, Paul and his team go to the place of prayer in Philippi, and Paul and Silas pray their way out of prison. In chapter 20, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus together for prayer. The church is called together, and they pray, and there's that very intimate moment where they weep and understand that they will likely never see Paul again. And finally, in chapter 27, Luke, Paul, and the crew of that ship engage in corporate prayer as they are certainly in danger of shipwreck. Yes, there are specific prayers that they're doing, and there are certainly specific things that they are saying, but there is general prayer that the church is constantly, continually devoted to, that they are seeking the Lord. They are dialing 911 to the Creator who says this of Himself in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me who is like me. Let Him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. The idea is they can't. These, all, these false idols, these false gods, they can't do that, right? Verse 8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Friends, that's the God, the God we call upon. <laughs> the God who declares and says, is there any other rock? Is there any other place to go? Is there anyone who will listen to you? Is there anyone who will, will call you son, will call you daughter? Is there anyone who's uh, both just and merciful at the same time? Is there anyone? There is no God like me. Friends, God alone is the only God that is able to save you, both in the here and now and the circumstances in life and for eternity. Have you cried out to him personally for 
for salvation. I know many, I've heard many testimonies of people who have come to church for a lot of years, and they listen and they hear the gospel, and they listen and they hear the gospel, but it has not sunk in. Maybe that's you this morning, and I would ask you, see yourself for the state that you are in and understand that God always has this 911 line called prayer that you can reach out to. Secondly, I did not know of your devotion to others in the church. Maybe you have isolated yourself from God's body. I would encourage you to get connected to the body of Christ. Become a fellow in the fellowship so that you may learn to bear one another's burdens in prayer and that you may cry out to the God who loves and cares for you. Get engaged in one of these small groups. Beloved, I know it's hard. Our lives are busy, right? But I'm telling you, the simplicity of you're going to eat anyway, and you will not regret it. I promise you will not regret it. When you push through and you find that time in your schedule and you begin to connect with people and see people and be encouraged by people, pray with people, see your own weaknesses around people and let them pray with you, and you begin, that that group begins to connect and really get strong, and next thing you know, the Lord, the Spirit of God is laying someone on your heart, and you're praying for them, and you reach out via text or some other way and let them know, and they are so blessed because they've not been isolated. They are known. People know them. Would you get engaged in some way? Would you, would you start? Prayer matters, beloved. We must be praying for each other. As I finish up here, I often turn to Warren Wearsby for good summary statements because he is set, does such a great job of what my pastor always says, giving you big handles on the truth of God's Word. So I look to him as we finish this series and this final message and to see what he might have to say about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and this is what he says, quote, The Christians you meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for service as usual. They met daily, Acts 2.46, cared daily, Acts 6.1, one souls daily, Acts 2.47, searched the scriptures daily, Acts 17.11, and increased in number daily, Acts 16.5. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a -a once-a-week routine. And he asked the questions why, or the question why. Because the risen Christ was a living reality to them, and his resurrection power was at work in their lives through the Spirit. Beloved, as we conclude this series, I hope that the Lord has renewed your thinking about what it looks like to be a devoted church. Remember that that word just means assembly. What does it mean to be devoted? It is the elders' prayer and mine that the Lord would ignite a fire inside of all of us to make a difference in this world. And we know that we cannot live autonomously, that we must do it together. As we commit to do this, we'll have to remember that corporate prayer is that tool, that 911 call to the only God, right? 
who is never overloaded, always available, eternally willing to come through on his promise. Amen. We're going to be a church that turns the world upside down. We will have to be a devoted church, beloved, one that is continually devoted to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you boldly, as the writer of Hebrews says, to the throne room of grace. We run right in, Lord, because you have given your spirit to us and you call us sons and daughters. Lord, we recognize our weakness. We recognize how our own culture blinds us from the needs of people. And certainly the devil is pretty happy to see us isolated or in some kind of apathetic state, not serving, not being devoted to each other. We understand, Lord, that your teaching, that a kingdom divided itself against itself will not stand, affects us daily in our attitudes. I pray, Lord, and I know, uh, God, that it is our elders' desire and prayer that you would make us a church that is continually devoted to you, continually devoted to one another, continually devoted to walking through your prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we might see you as our great God and King, that we might see our great need for physical things, that we might see our great need to confess sin and our great need for you to deliver us from the evil one who desires to destroy our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bind us together as a church, that beyond our private prayer closets that you, Lord, have called us to have, that we would be devoted to one another in prayer, devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to having meals and breaking bread together, Lord, and devoted to this prayer. Lord, we need your help and we love you. We know we cannot do it on our own. Help us now in these things, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said.